because we couldn't hear back there. Okay, you can hear me? Okay. Sorry about that. All right. So, first let me say it's good to be back. It's good to see so many familiar faces. It's been a while. Um, as Father Jose had mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm now serving in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. For those of you who are not familiar with Thailand, uh, think of Corinth, multiply by 10, subtract 2, and then add 5. I don't know what that comes out to, but uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Today, I, I'll, I'll be right up front. I am not in my A game. Um, as probably many of you already know, my wife's actually in the hospital. I found out this morning. Um, I don't know what's wrong. I can't get a hold of her. I can't get a hold of anybody there. Uh, so it's a mystery. Um, <laughs> as much as I, I try so hard to go and say, okay, you know what, God, you got this under control. It, it, at the end of the day, the human part of me just wants to fly right back like right now and see what's wrong. Uh, so, yeah, so definitely keep me in prayer on that one and keep her in prayer especially uh, for whatever's going on. But uh, regardless of whatever happens, it's God's will, and I truly believe that. So, yeah. But uh, I'm sure we've all had those days, right? Those days where you wake up in the morning and you just don't want to get out of bed. Those days where you're walking around and you're just like, Lord, what are you doing to me? I've had quite a few of those days. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and share that with you. And then towards the end, I'll, I'll share a little bit about what I'm doing in, in Bangkok, Thailand as well, just to kind of get you guys aware and involved. Um, many of you know me, but very few of you actually know my life and kind of where I came from. Um, I was born just south of Detroit. So Eminem and all those guys, uh, Kid Rock, uh, they were all kind of nearby me. I didn't know any of them personally, but uh, yeah, I kind of lived around that area. And... Um, my, my mom originally, my, my first dad, my mom married this military guy. So I, I grew up initially in a military household. So we were run, running around, moving all over from base to base. Um, but my mom got divorced from him when I was about three years old. And um, so growing up, I, I never met my dad. I don't know what he looks like other than a picture I saw last year. Um, he died, actually. He died last year in December. So I never had a chance to really meet him. But, uh, yeah, that's neither here nor there, really. But there is something that kind of it creates a splinter in your mind, I guess is the best way to put it. You always kind of wonder where you came from. And I guess, in a sense, uh, the, the blood running through your veins, who it really belongs to. My mother remarried when, when I was about five, and uh, her, her first husband was very abusive. That's why she ended up leaving him. Uh, he would beat her up. Uh, at one point, he kidnapped me, held me hostage for about a week, and then dropped me off at some next-door neighbor's house we didn't even know. They raised me for a little while, 
few weeks at least, I don't know how long it was really, until my mother found me finally. And uh, it was at that point I think she really just had enough. Uh, but she got remarried when I was five uh, to a gentleman. Uh, you actually met him. He's my stepdad. He was here uh, during my ordination to the diaconate at St. James. Um, at least some of you may have met him. Growing up with him was tough because it, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he never hurt my mom any, and he definitely didn't hurt my sisters any. But uh, he did, he did kind of take it out on me a little bit when things were going wrong. Uh, we were very poor. At one point, we lived in an abandoned store. Um, he would steal watermelons across the, the, the street to feed us because we just couldn't afford food. So we ate watermelon nearly every day. So I don't eat watermelon anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't eat watermelon anymore. Uh, so yeah, so growing up was kind of hard. As I got older and I entered into high school, I realized that I did not want to be at home at all. So I tried to join as many extracurricular activities as possible. So I wouldn't come home till seven or eight at night intentionally. And I'd go straight to bed and wake up the next morning and that was my life, Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, I, I did everything I could to stay the night at my parent, grandparents' house. Uh, I love my grandparents. They raised me during a transition period in my younger years, uh, between about the ages of three to six, uh, when my mom and dad just couldn't take care of me. So I kind of always looked at my grandfather as, as my real dad, uh, since I, I didn't, know, didn't know him. However, things really took a turn for the worst. At the age of 17, about two months before I was going to graduate, uh, my grandfather and I were sitting around talking, and out of nowhere he says, son, which is what he always called me, he said, son, I want you to know I'm going to die when I'm happy. And uh, I looked at him, and I, I couldn't figure out what he meant by this. And he just looked at me, and I could tell just by looking at his eyes that he was telling me that he was going to commit suicide. And I remember thinking in my head, I'm like, I better tell somebody but at the same time, I knew that he was already kind of feeling sick and depressed, so I knew that if I pulled someone aside and told them that he might get reprimanded, because that was the way it always worked. And whenever he complained about anything, people were just like, oh, be quiet, you know, you're just grumpy. And so I was like, well, that's not going to help. So I didn't say anything. A uh, month later, he committed suicide. Um, it did a number on me. One, because I had lost my father. That was the way I viewed it. I don't think anybody understood how much I loved that man. I looked up to him. I wanted to be like him. He was a great guy. But the, the second thing was I harbored a lot of guilt because I kind of looked at it as my fault. I kept saying, well, you know what? If I would have told somebody that he had said this to me, maybe we could have got him treatment. Maybe we could have got him into a hospital. There were a lot of maybes in my thoughts. So at that point, and up until that point, I had never thought about God. My parents were not religious. I'd never seen them pray. I think I had been to a church maybe a handful of times in my whole entire life. Um, so God, the Bible, Christianity, it had no part in my upbringing. 
So my first question ended up being, well, where do people go when they commit suicide? I went to the people that I knew looked the holiest, and that were the Roman Catholics. I could spot them out of anywhere. You know, so I, I went to them, and, and I asked a, a priest, I said, you know, what happens to someone when they commit suicide? And I could tell him, giving me that eye, you know, he was like, oh, you know, I, I think he was worried that I was thinking about it. Um, I didn't give him any information. I just wanted to know a general answer. I didn't want it to be biased. And uh, he said, well, you said people who commit suicide go to hell. At that very moment, I became as zealous as Paul at persecuting Christians. At that moment, I hated Christians with all my heart. All my heart. I had made it my duty at that point to shake anyone's faith I can and to hurt people in any way I can that even mention the name Jesus. And in all this, I, I started to reflect my pain on the outside. I, I started dressing in black clothes, wearing makeup, looking like Marilyn Manson walking down the street. I did whatever I could to pull myself as far as I could from the idea of Christianity. And I went into some really dark places. In the midst of this, my mom was crushed that her father had died. And my dad had relied on alcohol to cope with her depression, my depression, and everything that was going on in the household. And I feel sorry for him because he had a bum, a bum deal in all this. He didn't, there was no way he could help any of us. And he couldn't help himself. And so he just relied on the bottle at that point which obviously only made matters even worse. One night, my sister and I, I have two sisters, uh, they're both half-sisters, one's, uh, one's five years younger than me, the other one's about nine years younger. And uh, me and my older sister, the one that's five years younger than me, we were up in her bedroom just hanging out. We had become very close friends. Um, we were very close. And it was about one in the morning, and. She loved music. She's a musician. Uh, she even had a music video at one time, and things changed her life. She's not in that anymore, but that was her passion at the time. And uh, you know, we were just talking, and then all of a sudden we heard my, my dad coming up the stairs. And we could tell he was drunk because we heard my mom and dad hollering downstairs. And uh, he stormed upstairs, and he immediately started yelling at my sister, asking about this phone bill that apparently was high. Um, because the month before, she, she racked up the phone bill pretty good. And uh, in the midst of this, I realized that it wasn't her fault. It was actually my fault. So I, I said, you know, no, blame me. You know, she's innocent. But in the midst of all this, he was so incoherent, so angry, so depressed, that he ended up punching a hole in the wall, just putting a, a massive, massive dent in it, and then punching a hole in the door and just going completely just <laughs> rage-driven. Uh, my sister was terrified. I could see the fear in her face. So I led my father out into the hallway as he was directing all his anger at me. And she took off behind him. Meanwhile, he's slamming against the wall, screaming at me. And uh, as soon as he sees her running down the stairs, he follows after her, goes down the stairs. He turns right, and, and I guess he must have seen her going for the phone. So I chased after him. And as I turned right and looked, he had my sister. He threw her on the couch grabbed the phone, ripped it out of the wall, and smashed the lamp. It, it was chaos. 
At that point, when I saw him pick up my sister, I had enough. I was 18 at the time. I never stood up to my father, but I did. And uh, I said some choice words that I could not repeat to you now. Um, but I told him basically to get out and that he's drunk and he's not welcome here anymore. And he didn't take too kindly to that. Uh, needless to say, things kind of got out of hand. He was trying to taunt me to hit him. We nearly got into a fist fight. Cops eventually came. My sister managed to call 911 before he disconnected the cable. Uh, praise God. Um, so he ended up going to jail overnight. And the cops put a restraining order against him on my behalf. My mom was just completely in tears because... She was so afraid of losing him because he was the only thing that was keeping us going. She had no skills. She only had a high school education. She didn't work, so she was completely relying on him to take care of uh, herself and us. I didn't understand that at the time, but she kept saying, well, you know, we can't leave, we can't leave. You know, how could you do this? Blaming me for his actions and for him going to jail. She ended up leaving with my two sisters and leaving me at the house by myself that night. So... <laughs> I stayed the night there just trying to figure all this out. The next morning, the cops call at 10, and I remember this very clearly. They said, well, your dad's being released. He's going to be back in probably about a half hour. Uh, but we put a restraining order against him so he can't touch you. I was like, okay. And uh, he, said, uh, he said, well, he said, so, uh, you know, just to let you know, he's being released. And, and then I said, well, I said, wait, is he coming back here? And he said, no, there's a restraining order. I said, are you sure? He said, well, how old are you? I said, well, I'm 18. And he said, well, who owns the house? I said, my dad. And he said, well, he said, then you have to leave. And I was like, leave where? Where can I go? My family was a mess at this point. I didn't really have any relatives close to me that could take me in. My friends, by that point I had graduated. They have all went off. I was literally alone. And uh, he said, I don't know. He said, maybe you can stay with family or friends. And I, I just hung up the phone at that point. Ran upstairs, grabbed a garbage bag, stuffed as many clothes as I could fit in it, threw it in my old rusty 82 Toyota Corolla, and took off. I circled around the block for nearly three hours, passing by my house. And then I saw the cops drop him off, and I knew that was it. It was finished. I had nowhere to go, so I slept on the streets. I was homeless for two years. Two years. So, and all this happened within about six months to a year's time. So I was an absolute, absolute mess and complete devastation. I had to stop community college. I had started community college. I had to stop. I couldn't go. Because there was no way. I, I, had a, I had enough energy to finish my exams, but I didn't do well because I had no chance to study. So I actually failed a couple classes. Um, barely got by in a couple others. And that was it. So I stayed on the streets for about two years. Part, partly in south of Detroit and then in Toledo. And as I was staying there, it only made my anger worse towards God. It was never that I didn't believe in God. I believed in God. I just didn't like him. And at the time, I would have told you that I was an atheist. 
I would have told you I was an atheist, I didn't believe in God, but that really wasn't the truth. I always knew there was something there. So to make matters worse, while I was homeless, I was in the parking lot. I always sleep in the parking lot of a Kmart because that's where I worked. So I'd get up at 6.30 in the morning, walk into Kmart, work as many hours as they would even let me. They would never give me full time. So I'd work like 39.5 hours, and then I'd have to be out again. So slept in the parking lot. But one night, this crazy guy, I don't know who he was. To this day, I still don't know. It was 2 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. It was really cold. It was about to snow. And uh, he pulls up in the parking lot, and this Firebird, about 1980, yeah, 1982 Firebird. So we had the same year car, roughly, somewhere around there. Uh, it was an older car. It was nice. Um, and he gets out of his car, and he walks over to the, the store, and it's closed by this point. The only thing that we had by him was two pop machines. So I was like, well, maybe he's stopping to get a pop. So I'm just watching him, and he goes up to the window. He looks inside the window, and uh, obviously it's closed, so I don't know what he's doing. And then he walks around his car, and he starts walking towards my car. And I'm, I'm looking at him, and he, he steps about maybe about 20 feet forward. And then I'm looking, and in his hand, I see this shiny metal thing. I'm like, oh, maybe he already has a pop. It wasn't a pop. He points his gun at me and fires three shots at me. After the first shot, when I heard the first shot, I dropped down into the floorboard. Um, I didn't know what else to do. I, I couldn't start the car and take off. I, I was in shock, and I just wasn't thinking clearly. So I just got down as low as I could. Then I heard two more shots fire. I don't know where they went. I checked the car afterwards. I couldn't find the bullets. I wasn't hit, praise God. Um, but uh, he was definitely firing. And after he fired three shots, he pulled around. And I could hear his car next to mine. And I was thinking in my head, I'm like, this is it. This is it. I'm dead. You know? And I'm laying on the floorboard terrified, and then all of a sudden a peace came over me. And I was, I, I, the best way I can accept it, uh, say it is that I just accepted what was in front of me. So I sat back up in my seat, and I laid back because I was reclined back trying to sleep. I reclined back, and I just turned my head and looked at him. And my car was facing like this. I was on the driver's side, and his car was like this. So we were driver to driver. And he was sitting there looking at me. Blonde hair, blue eyes, white Caucasian, maybe no more than about 140 pounds. Maybe 150. I remember his eyes just staring at me, and I just looked right back at him. I was just waiting for it. There was nothing else I could do. And then we sat there. It felt like hours, but I'm sure it was no more than a couple minutes. And then he just peeled out. After that, I was so shocked, so stressed, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't sleep at night anymore. I would stay outside my car, squatting down by the car, waiting if he would come back, ready to take off. Sometimes I'd try a different parking lot, but the parking lots that I felt safe in were always too noisy and it was hard to sleep. So I always had to come back to this parking lot. Didn't know where else to go. Luckily, he never came back. But, uh, yeah. After about two years, finally a family accepted to take me in. They were very dysfunctional. Uh, it was a couple. They were lesbian and they were both prostitutes as well as a profession. Um, they had three sons. One was a homosexual who lived with his cross-dressing boyfriend in the basement. The other son I never saw, only but maybe a handful of times. He would roam the streets. He was only 14. The older son was about 18. 
And then there was a middle child who wanted to be a cop who I was kind of closer to. It was a strange dynamic, to say the least. It's a Jerry Springer moment, as I call it. So I stayed with them. And, you know, the interesting part is, is that although they may not have been Christians or may not have looked as Christians, they did love me. As strange as it was, they cared for me. They took care of me. They gave me a chance. I got to stay with them for nine months until I could get enough savings to get my own place and get myself situated and stabilized. And I still am thankful and grateful for that, despite how chaotic and crazy it would get sometimes. The, the mother had schizophrenia, so sometimes she'd go off on the deep end and she'd be walking around the house with a knife. So you always had to lock your door sometimes, and she'd pound on the door and say, let me in. Uh, you don't let her in when she's in those states, you know? So it was crazy sometimes, but I'm very grateful for that moment because that's what got me off the streets. And nobody else offered their home in that way. So this comes the exciting part. All this is pretty bleak, I know. I met a girl. After I was, you know, stable and all this, I met a girl. There's always a girl in the story, isn't there? <laughs> and she was Roman Catholic. So she'd take me to church and, you know, I told her whatever she wanted. Oh, you know, I, yeah, I'm Christian. You know, yeah, I believe in God, you know. I do, I do everything, you know. And, and the funny part was, we, I was big into drugs at that point. I was taking tons of drugs. I, ecstasy, ketamine, I, coke, whatever you laid in front of me, I was doing it. And uh, I met her at a rave, of all places, but she said she was a Christian. I was like, okay, that's fine. You can call yourself whatever you want. So she, uh, she took me to church, and, you know, I really liked the Eucharist. <clears throat> I would take the Eucharist, even though I didn't really care for any of the rest. You know, there was something about it, until all of a sudden someone found out I wasn't Catholic and then reprimanded me and said, you need to stay in your pews. I was like, okay. So I never came back to the Roman Catholic Church again. But uh, I always had that gravitation towards the Eucharist, which is probably why I'm so high church now. Um, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, she takes me to a tent revival. This is a Pentecostal tent revival, mind you. I don't know if you've ever been to a Pentecostal tent revival, but if you have, it's really in a tent. They had a huge tent built up, and they had probably about eight preachers there from the local area, also Pentecostal and very charismatic. But I was coming for one reason, one reason only. Everyone was telling me, oh, this guy, you know, he's a bishop from Kenya and he can do miracles. I was like, okay, okay. Well, I didn't believe it. So I was going to go there and prove this guy was a phony. That was my whole intention. I'm going to prove this guy is a fake. I get there. He's preaching. It's about 9.30. All of a sudden, I bust into tears. I don't know what he said. I really don't know what he said. I, I can't remember the sermon. But something in my heart was changing, even at that moment. And I just felt so desperate. And in the midst of all this, at some point in time, I know he said, if you want to receive Christ, stand up. Something like that. I don't remember standing up, but what I do remember, I was on my feet. There was about seven of us. And once I realized I was standing up, I looked down. I looked at my girlfriend who thought I was Christian. And I remember thinking, I just gave that one away. <laughs> and then he's calling us up front. He wants to call us up front to the altar. And at this point, I was terrified. I'm like, there's no way I'm going up front. The, the game over. We're done. So I'm, I'm getting ready to sit back down. 
And then I look at her again, and I'm like, now I'm really stuck because it's either do it or, or commit or sit down and this is over. So I was like, okay, I got to. And I'm still crying. I'm embarrassed, you know what I mean? My, my eyeliner's running, you know. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. It's really bad. Yeah. It's not one of my highlighting moments, trust me. And all pictures have been destroyed. So, yeah. Um, so I went up front and he lined us up shoulder to shoulder, about seven people. I was the third person uh, uh, to the right, and then there was another four people off to my left. He told us to close our eyes and put our hands up. So I'm closing my eyes, I'm putting my hands up, tears are running down my face, I'm scared as can be, I don't know what's going on. And uh, all of a sudden I hear him praying, and he's praying in English at first, and then all of a sudden he starts praying in some other language. And I'm thinking in my head, well, that does not sound like any type of uh, African language I've ever heard before. I was like, okay, well, just roll with it, just roll with it. So I'm closing my eyes, and all of a sudden I hear some commotion. And I'm like, oh no, oh no. Okay, so I, I close my eyes even tighter. I'm like, I'm not going to look. I don't want to see this. Just let this be done. And then he goes to the next guy to my right. Same thing. Praise for him. I start hearing some strange, funny languages. And then all of a sudden, I can feel the guy, because we're shoulder to shoulder. I feel him drift back. I was like, oh, this ain't even good now. And, and, and there, there's like six people behind me. They're bumping me and stuff. And I still got my hands closed, crying with my eye makeup running. And yeah, God knows what I looked like at that point. Uh, luckily, we didn't have a mirror. So... I, I saw my hands up, and it closed even tighter now. And I don't know, when you close your eyes, you know how you get those little white spots in your eye? I had that. And I'm looking at these white spots, just trying to focus on the white spots. I don't even want to pay attention anymore to what's going on. And I hear them in front of me, starting to come in front of me. And as I hear them in front of me, off in the distance, I see this white light. Out of all the sparkles, th this white light. And it was just a pinpoint, just a pinpoint. And as I had my eyes closed and my, my hands up in tears, it got larger. And before I could realize it, 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 the light, the whitest light, whiter than this, took the shape of a hand. And, and it, there was a sleeve just like this, hence why I have this all. Uh, a sleeve just like this drifting out. And it was positioned like this. And by the time it had reached right about here, I was out. I was out. The next thing I remember, every bad thing that had ever occurred in my life flashed before my eyes like a slideshow. Like those old rickety slideshows that we saw in elementary school, and it would just go psh, psh, and make that noise. Well, it didn't make that noise, but it was kind of like that. But it was fast, really fast. But my brain could process it, even though I couldn't make out all the images, I knew what I was seeing. And in it, all these emotions, guilt, shame, sadness, all this came out inside me. And then all of a sudden, after about 30 seconds of these just flashing through, which I must have done a lot of bad things, about 30 seconds just flashing through, all of a sudden it was dark, I was at peace, and everything felt calm. A peace I have never experienced before or since. I opened my eyes, and I got a red hanky on me, a couple of people praying over me. I'm halfway across the tent. I don't even know how I got there. And I remember thinking, what do I do? And I look over for this bishop, and I see him off in the far corner of the tent. And so I'm trying to get up, but I'm too weak. I can't stand up, and I'm covered in sweat and tears by this point. 
and I'm too weak. So I flip over on my stomach. I can get on my hands and knees enough just to crawl. And I crawl over to him, and I grab his pant leg, and he's facing away from me. I grab his pant leg, and he turns around, and I pull myself up, and I said, what do I do now? And I'm just in tears. What do I do? He looks down at me and smiles, and he says, read your Bible and go to church. (laughs) And so, you know, I read my Bible, and I went to church. If he told me to eat lima beans, I would eat lima beans. It didn't matter at that point. Whatever this guy had, I wanted it. I knew at that very moment that my whole life had changed. I knew that I was no longer living for myself. But I was living for something greater than me. And I knew that my life wasn't going to ever be satisfactory enough until I could touch people's lives the way he touched mine. He was obedient to God, came halfway across the globe to come and speak to me, and he didn't know it. And in God using him, in his obedience, I received Christ. From that point forward, my whole life has been dedicated to seeing people come to the Lord that don't know him. That's always been my passion. So... I finished my undergrad. I changed my major. I was originally going to study pre-law. Changed it to world religions and psychology. I figured the best way to convert is to understand where people are coming from and understand their heart and their mind. So I figured I'd put those two together. So I created my own major. I did that. Then went on to seminary. Ended up going to Thailand for about three years, working with kids. And in that period of time... I realized that that was where I belonged. I knew those kids needed me so bad. And I had saw such deprivation, such depression, such sadness, such poverty that makes my homelessness look like a palace. And I knew I was at home. I stayed there three years. I met my lovely wife, Poom. We got married. And then after we got married, I said, Hon, it's time I go back. I need to finish seminary and really help. Teaching just wasn't enough for me. So we went back. She got her MBA. I finished seminary, got ordained. And then we were talking about, well, when do we go back? And uh, we had decided that, you know what, we were just going to not wait. We weren't going to postpone it. We were just going to be obedient to what God had us to. We knew where our hearts were. So we just submitted and went. And things didn't line up properly. Tons of obstacles, you know. It's just, that's the way it is with with God. I mean, let me just say this. I don't know what your theology is on this, but I will tell you the absolute truth. Satan is real. Satan is real. There is a personification. There is a very real evil that we do not talk about at all. We're afraid to talk about it because we're afraid to scare people. We're afraid to offend. But it's a real evil thing. I can say this because even in my time as Gothic and whatnot, I dabbled in some occult stuff that, honestly, I knew the devil existed more than I knew God did. And that's the reality. In our life, when you're in the Christian walk, just like I'm facing right now, this morning, we are always in constant opposition against the darker worlds. 
we're always in constant opposition. It's a battle. And you've got to keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that the devil's around every corner. But what it does mean, you need to be aware of the fact that there can always be a lion prowling behind you. So, with Thailand, here's what I'm facing. And let me just be straight up, I need your help. Time, talent, and treasure. That's what I need. I'm dealing with children who are in single-parent homes, not uncommon to what we have in the States. However, what ends up happening is these children end up working the streets either as prostitutes, beggars, in gangs, the mafia, doing whatever they can to help support their mom, because it's usually mothers. They drop out of school. I'm dealing with that. That's one of my primary ministries. I also work in the slums, where a whole entire town got burnt down. So the government replaced them in these projects. The families turned to alcoholism and other ways to cope. The, the children are left abandoned and neglected. So we come in and we try to help them, providing love, compassion, food, education, whatever we can do to give them a normal life. And we're quite limited, but we do our best. We also have an orphanage where there's eight kids and we're looking to disciple them and bring them up as leaders. We don't even call it an orphanage. We call it a leadership development center. Because it's not just providing food and shelter. It's providing love. It's providing Christ. And then probably one of the top things on my list that God has really put in my heart are slaves. Yes, there are still slaves in the world. And I'm not even just talking about sex slaves. I'm not even talking about just the sex trade, although that's horrendous, and it definitely is there in Bangkok, in your face every day. But there is another type of slave that hasn't even been touched yet. Nobody's helping them. They've been kidnapped by the mafia, in some cases. Their arms and limbs are cut off. They are mutilated, burned, scarred beyond recognition, laid out on the streets to beg. They stay there from morning until night, begging for money while the mafia comes by periodically every hour and a half to collect the funds that they've collected from the tourists who don't know any better. The Thai people don't want to do anything because they realize that if they don't give money, the people get beat and tortured more. But at the same time, if you give them money, they're still feeding into their own system and it only encourages it even further. So you're left in a very tricky dilemma. I would walk past these people with my heart broken, knowing that I need to do something, but I don't know what to do. All of a sudden, I came across a quote by Mother Teresa. They asked her, they said, and I'm paraphrasing, but they asked her, they said, Mother Teresa, how do you do it? Aren't you overwhelmed by all the sick people that you're helping? Aren't you overwhelmed by all the poverty? How do you continue? And she said, well, it's simple. She said, I step outside and I help the person closest to me. And just start there. After I read that, I realized what I had to do. So I started helping the person closest to me. I walked outside, and the first homeless person who was a slave to the mafia that I could find, I would buy them food. The mafia can't take something that's been digested. 
And I would sit down, I would try to talk to them in my broken tie, or pray for them, or just simply say, God bless you and pray for them. That's all I can do right now. I'm living in poverty myself for the most part. We're barely making it by. Singapore has helped me in some ways to help kind of keep me afloat, but it's definitely not enough. I, I, I actually came to the States with $10 in my account. God actually pulled through and all of a sudden I had 400 It's an absolute miracle. People gave it. But that's the reality. That's what I'm facing. And let me just say this. It's not a social justice issue. It's a Christ issue. I'm not there to fix these people's lives. Christ even says the poor will always be with us. I can't change that. But I can share Christ. I can feed them. I can do what God's given me to do. And maybe in time, with his grace, his mercy, and his amazing blessings that he can bestow upon his people, perhaps, just maybe, I can provide more at a later date. I have faith. But that's where I'm at now. So I'm asking for the help. I need to feed these people. It's not cheap. Food is relatively cheap per meal. But I need help with that to help feed them. I also need laborers. The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. We have so many kids that we need to help, and we've only got a couple priests to actually do it, and our congregation that we have established right now is quite small. So we could use all the help we can get. So what I could say is, come and see. I would invite all of you, all of you, just to come and see. Spend a week with me. I will take you to the light parts, and I will take you to the dark parts, and we will pray together over this, and we'll find what God can do. But come and see, because we need your hands. And you're saying, well, you know what? I can't do anything. If you can speak the English language, you can teach. I can get you teaching in no time. That's easy. But we can definitely do a lot more, I'm sure. Each of you have gifts. Each of you have a calling. Each of you have a certain passion in your heart that you can share to everybody, be it Thai or be it in your local community. And the third and probably the most important thing of all is prayer. I need prayer for revival. I need prayer that these Thai people will open up their hearts to the gospel because they're quite close. We're talking about 96% Buddhist. Unlike in Islam or in South America where there's Roman Catholicism, in Islam you have Jesus. They at least know the name Jesus. They have some familiarity with Christianity. But we're dealing with a population that what I would call is the final frontier. They don't even know Jesus. They've never even heard the word. When you say Jesus, they think it's a food. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but they don't know. They don't know the person. So it's a completely, entirely different challenge that's been overlooked for far too long. And so now missionaries are just starting to really get in there from the Anglican Church. I'm the only American Anglican priest there in all of the Thailand, in the whole country. I'm the only one serving. I've got some Singaporean brothers and sisters who are priests that are also helping in that area. So I'm not alone. But we could definitely use a few more Americans to teach English, to just work with the kids and offer the gifts that God has naturally given you. So please be in prayer about that. Keep my wife in prayer. Keep me in prayer for protection, grace, and mercy. And that God guides me into his will in all things. That's my prayer. So let us pray.
Lord, we, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for calling us into your heavenly kingdom. We thank you for allowing us to be ambassadors for your kingdom, to invite people in to your kingdom to serve you as Lord. We thank you for the grace, the mercy, the promises. We thank you for the trials and tribulations. We thank you for all of it, Lord, because in all of it, you prevail. In all of it, you shape. In all of it, you encourage. If we can just look past the flesh and see into your divine mercy. We pray this day for anybody who is hurting, anybody who is sick, anyone who is struggling, Lord. We ask that you enter into their hearts and give them peace, Lord. And you guide them to a solution that will ease their pain, their hearts, their suffering, Lord. Whoever it may be. We ask that you keep the people in Thailand in your hearts. Do not abandon them, Lord. But flow inside their hearts with your presence, your grace, your love, and your mercy, Lord. And we ask that you pray for, that, that, you, that you bring down revival. That you bring down revival, Lord, and that you allow the gospel to sink in and do transforming things, Lord. We also pray for this church and this area, Lord. Let it be fruitful, Lord. Let it multiply, Lord. And let each and every one in here find their calling in you as a citizen of the kingdom, Lord. And let that gift be used mightily. We thank you and we praise you for all your grace and mercy in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now you know when we pray for missionaries, what it means. Uh, I think uh, Father Lee has given us a little bit of a taste of things that we seldom know about.